0: You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association. Helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg.
1: Today, I am joined by Maliki Clancy. To discuss the clinical management of COVID-19 living guideline published by the World Health Organization on September 15th of this year, Uh, By the time this episode is released, I believe that will just be last month, Uh, but Malachi, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me.
1: It's our pleasure. Um, As you mentioned to me previously, this is really a beast of a document. It's got numerous contributors. The entire document is available for review on the World Health Organization's website and is linked in the description of this episode. Uh, We're going to be focusing our discussion on applications for occupational therapy practitioners. Um, I would just want to go ahead and dive right in. Can you begin by explaining to us how you became involved with the World Health Organization and what your role in developing this guideline was?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, back in late spring, summer 2021, there were increasing reports of individuals who basically just continue to present with prolonged symptoms of COVID-19. Uh, the World Health Organization, utilizing what's called a Delphi process, convened a group of about 40 experts to identify a working definition of what we now call post-COVID-19 condition. And so post-COVID-19 condition is really the uh, umbrella term for the symptoms that continue to present after an individual has been um, diagnosed or uh has experienced COVID-19. The next challenge was to identify clinical recommendations to rehabilitate individuals with this novel condition. And so the WHO partnered with a number of international organizations, including the World Federation of Occupational Therapists to seek nominations from qualified individuals and subject matter expertise, um, and those with experience in the care of patients with COVID-19. And so I submitted my application and was nominated by the World Federation of Occupational Therapists and chosen by the World Health Organization to join this international work group.
1: That is amazing. Uh, congratulations for uh, being nominated and and having a role in this. I want to ask, can you tell us about what your background and, and working, uh, what type of experiences have you had in your career as a practitioner that prepared you um, with working with this population,
0: yeah, sure. Um, so during my time on um, the guideline development group for the for the WHO, um, at that time I had been practicing and I was a, as an occupational therapist for twelve years in the acute care environment, and my primary area of clinical expertise is focused on the care of the uh, cardiopulmonary patient population. I, I also hold board certification physical rehabilitation by the American Occupational Therapy Association, and. Uh, I have a PhD in health policy as well with uh, some research expertise, really looking at the cardiopulmonary po- patient population. And so when the pandemic started, I was the OT team leader at my organization and kind of helped spearhead and co-lead our rehabilitation response to the treatment of the of patients with COVID-19 and then the overall pandemic. And so at that time, a group of colleagues and I had been researching outcomes of patients hospitalized with COVID, including COVID-induced myocarditis, uh, most recently looking at a case series of patients who underwent bilateral lung transplantation for COVID and um, some outcomes related to hospitalization, discharge disposition, and length of stay for individuals with COVID.
1: It sounds like you are extremely well qualified. um, And to have this role with the World Health Organization, you're expertise, uh, in this field is greatly appreciated. Thank you for your time and coming on the show. Um, you mentioned a lot of this development was coming up with clinical recommendations, um, in, in working with people who have post COVID-19 condition, um, on this show, We've discussed practice guidelines and different pieces of evidence um, that contain clinical recommendations and the vast amount of research and work that goes into coming up with those solid recommendations. Um, And I want to ask you, what can you tell practitioners who work with a large range of client populations? How can they really focus their efforts to search for evidence that supports best practice?
0: Yeah, it's it's a great question, you know, and it's difficult to stay abreast of all the published literature but there are ways to make it easier. And so um, some of the ways that I do it, I sign up for table of contents alerts from journals that are of specific interest to me. And so those will come into my email inbox maybe once or twice a month and can just click on any articles that I find relevant. Um, you can also create like a weekly digest of search term from databases such as like PubMed, Google Scholar to receive a list of recent publications or topics that might be of interest to you. Uh, as a member of AOTA, you have access to a wide variety of journals that can easily um, access from their website. And so just set those once or twice a week and quickly skim the literature to stay up to date on the latest evidence. And, you know, the other big thing is to make knowledge sharing a shared responsibility at your place of work, holding journal clubs, staff and services, things along those lines to really promote evidence based practice.
1: Those are excellent tips. Um, for our listeners. And I love at the end there how you emphasized, you know, creating a little community uh to share research, publications, and and best practice with uh that that can definitely make a huge difference. I wanna jump right in now to the living guideline. COVID-19 and and post-COVID-19 condition continues to be kind of a, a novel illness, uh doesn't have an extensive library of published research related to intervention and outcomes, um at least that I'm aware of. What types of evidence were used to develop this guideline, and what does that really mean or imply for practitioners when they're using the guideline?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the World Health Organization actually partnered with uh, Cochrane Rehabilitation and Cochrane Systematic Reviews to kind of guide the synthesis of evidence, and really what they did was tried to seek out high-quality systematic reviews and randomized controlled trials related to the care of individuals with COVID-19. But kind of, as you mentioned, there's a small but growing body of evidence on this condition. Um, Knowing that the literature was also looked at with individuals with other similar known viral conditions. So thinking about um, SARS or MERS and trying to look at the, uh, the applicability to this population. The interesting thing here is as a living guideline, the goal is to update it as new evidence emerges and we learn more on how to treat and manage the condition. So the anticipation is that, you know, after two years, this guideline will hopefully um, be able to be updated and evidence be able to incorporate it as we continue to learn more.
1: Absolutely. I, I really love how um, the living guideline is is put right there in the title to show that the research will continue to be um, kind of thickened out and, and added to, um, that's an excellent resource for for clinicians. Um, you were involved specifically in chapter 24 of the guideline uh, titled Care of COVID-19 Patients After Acute Illness. How do you hope OT practitioners can use um, this chapter?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So my hope is that OT practitioners use this guideline to really guide their models of care identify potential red flags for rehabilitation, and incorporate the recommendations into their clinical practice. And this would ultimately help people return to their desired occupations and improve their health and function. The second thing is uh, I would state that many of the recommendations are interconnected since post COVID-19 condition can impact multiple body structures and functions. And so the guidelines offer suggested rehabilitation interventions and their anticipated outcomes And you can use this evidence to educate your patients on why you're incorporating these recommendations into their plan of care and develop a therapeutic relationship with them to identify their desired goals of care.
1: I love how you emphasize developing that uh, therapeutic relationship. Um, I think now might be a good time to mention I'm going to ask you to share some examples of, of your experience in working with this population, uh, but we do want to encourage all of our listeners to take a look at this guideline, really go through this chapter, apply it to your own clinical reasoning um, and your own experience with uh, being client-centered with the people that you work with. I think that's a, a good time to put this plug in. How is the chapter organized?
0: Sure. So the chapter is titled Care of COVID-19 Patients After Acute Illness. And so, it encompasses 16 recommendations in total. The first five recommendations are designed to support models of care, so it discusses things like referral principles for rehabilitation, red flags for safe rehabilitation, components and functions of rehabilitation care, service delivery, and the workforce, meaning who should be involved in the care of patients with post-COVID condition. And within that guideline, it specifically states occupational therapy is an essential component of this workforce. The remaining 11 topics were chosen based on a high prevalence of reported symptoms in the literature. And many of the individuals actually involved in the creation of guideline were were healthcare individuals or researchers living with post-COVID-19 condition and were able to offer their insight into their lived experiences. The 11 topics are Uh, that are discussed include post-exertional symptom exacerbation, arthralgia, breathing impairments, cognitive impairments, fatigue, mental health, olfactory impairments, orthostatic intolerance, swallowing impairments, voice impairments, and return to activities of daily living and work.
1: Thank you. I I didn't know that uh, the lived experience was really included in this guideline as well. I think that's a really interesting intersection of you know qualitative data along with quantitative and the combination of of lived experience with post covid-19 condition and systematic reviews uh looking at uh robust and and large numbers of of people experiencing uh that type of thing so just adds more to the the applicability of of the document what what really is the different type of of recommendations can you describe kind of what they are you mentioned that each section has clinical interventions and expected outcomes, but what about the recommendation statements? Um, I know some of them are conditional or strong recommendations. Does that have to do with the level of evidence and support for them, Um, or, or how are those organized?
0: Yeah, so the recommendation statements are listed incorporating what's called the GRADE approach, which stands for grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluations a transparent framework for developing and presenting summaries of evidence and kind of provides a systematic approach for making clinical practice recommendations, and this is a clinical practice guideline. The great approach factors in things such as like the available scientific evidence, the balance of benefits versus harms and the burdens associated with them, difference in values and opinion, and the balance of net benefits and costs. And so, a conditional recommendation means the desirable effects of adherence to a recommendation probably outweigh the undesirable effects, but it's not necessarily fully confident. So, for clinicians, this really means that you should recognizing that like different choices will be appropriate for different pop uh, for different patients, and that you must help each, each patient to arrive at a, a decision consistent with his or her values and preferences. A strong recommendation means the panels confident that the desirable effects of adherence to a recommendation would outweigh the undesirable effects. For patients, this means like most people in their situation would want the recommended course of action. And for clinicians, this really means that patients should receive that recommended course of action.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I think that information is important for uh, clinicians in in going through the chapter and and uh, gleaming from it um how they can apply the principles to their approach we'll get back to our interview right after this quick word we try to make research more applicable and more consumable for our listeners and completing the survey that we mention on each episode helps us to do just that aota members are now eligible to receive one contact hour for listening to an episode of our show and completing the survey The survey is still only three questions long and can be found by following the link in this episode's description. Get yourself a contact hour and help us to improve the show, improve the resources AOTA provides to its clinicians, and improve the application of evidence to practice in our field. Now back to the interview. What? What is post-COVID 19 condition? I know we've mentioned it a couple of times here. Uh, can you give us some more details? Really, what is it and what are kind of those mid and long term effects of of COVID-19 that OT practitioners may see?
0: Yeah, this is a great question. And this is kind of one of the challenges of things that we see out in the 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 literature and the scientific world. And so you might hear post-COVID 19 condition also referred to as long haul COVID or something along those lines. And so um, the World Health Organization defines post COVID-19 condition as the illness that occurs in people who have a history of probable or confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection, usually within three months from the onset of COVID-19 with symptoms and effects that last for at least two months. These symptoms and effects of post COVID-19 condition cannot be explained by an alternative diagnosis. And so some people develop a variety of mid and long term effects like fatigue, breathlessness and cognitive dysfunction. So like examples like confusion, forgetfulness or a lack of mental focus and clarity. And it's difficult to predict how long post-COVID-19 condition will last for any given patient. Still have much to learn about the condition, but current research shows that patients can experience lingering symptoms for weeks to months following COVID.
1: And what are the settings um, that occupational therapy practitioners will most likely um, be seeing patients experiencing these types of symptoms?
0: I think with the novelty of this this illness that you can continue to see patients with post-COVID-19 condition in almost any environment. And so the one big caveat I want to make here is that this definition of post-COVID-19 condition is really designed for adults, and there might be a separate diagnosis for children, and that's still kind of in development, but we know that it can impact children as well, and just in sort of different um, etiologies, Um, but I think that uh, you can encounter an individual who's still suffering from post-COVID-19 condition in any sort of environment, so whether that's acute care, rehabilitation, uh, or um, uh, acute rehab, or an outpatient setting, kind of anywhere,
1: Really important information for practitioners across settings um the the chapter we're discussing outlines considerations and evidence related as you mentioned to organizational rehabilitation care service delivery specific conditions and symptoms um which it's it's very robust and inclusive and a wonderful chapter I had the chance to look it over um it it's Too much to cover in one interview, though, unfortunately. Um, And again, we're encouraging listeners to check out the entire document. Uh, What would you say off the bat are some of the most important clinical applications included in this chapter?
0: Yeah, the most important aspect is to understand and identify red flags for safe rehabilitation as you don't want to harm the patient. And so in adult with post-COVID-19 condition, um, Exertional desaturation and cardiac impairment following COVID-19 should be ruled out and managed before any consideration of what we would call physical exercise training. Orthostatic intolerance is another big one, and uh, post-exertional symptom exacerbation, they're both amenable to rehabilitation, but the presence of them uh, will require interventions to be modified in view of these diagnoses for rehab to be safe. Uh, some red flags may be unclear and kind of depend on the the clinical skills of the the team and the practitioner, or availability of other diagnostic tests, or uh, if available. The guideline states that, like you know, clinical teams should have access to training to screen for and identify these red flags. And so, we're, what we really want to prevent is harming that patient. Uh, Unfortunately, right now, there's no one set of uh, assessments or investigations or tests that are suitable for everyone because of the wide range of symptoms and severity of the condition.
1: These red flags, um, is this something that a lot of practitioners could maybe identify through a chart review or interprofessional collaboration even before seeing the patient, Um, or would it be more of a screen or assessment?
0: Um, I think that a lot of it is uh, a review of the pertinent medical history, uh, uh, screening assessment. so taking a basic set of vital signs prior to providing any sort of assessment or intervention, and really having a discussion with your patient, uh, asking them um, if there are signs or symptoms of activity intolerance or cardiac impairment or pulmonary impairment prior to any sort of um, interventions. There we go.
1: Perfect. Thank you for those those tips. Um I think that's very applicable for practitioners to to consider. Um like you mentioned the number one thing is is not doing harm um, to patients. Uh, And you you mentioned earlier several impairment specific topics, um, including arthralgia, post-exertional symptom exacerbation, breathing impairment, cognitive impairment, and and, uh, fatigue, I think uh, you mentioned as well. Can you describe maybe just one or two of these topics and share the clinical recommendations uh, that are included in the guideline?
0: Yeah, certainly. So the main two topics that I was involved in, uh, our mental health and return to activities of daily living and work. Um, and so in discussing emotional health, you know, patients might report feeling anxious or depressed, and these symptoms might include things such as low mood, sadness, sleep disturbances, fatigue, concentration difficulties. And the conditional recommendation here is to incorporate psychological support. That might include things like um, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT mindfulness training, peer support groups, but there's not enough evidence to support one intervention over the other at this time. And as post-COVID-19 condition can have a combined effect of impairments in multiple body functions and structures, so you think about the impact on the physical, emotional, and cognitive functioning, there can be a pretty f- a profound impact on a person's ability to engage in their desired activities of daily living and work. And so the guideline clearly states that optimizing independence in daily living and enabling individuals to return to work should be seen as goals of rehabilitation and health outcomes. And so within our uh, recommendation for return to work and activities of daily living, our conditional recommendations there are really focused on education, skills training, incorporating energy conservation, pacing techniques, use of assistive devices to facilitate ease with ADLs. These are all the core principles of things that we know how to do as occupational therapists. And the guideline really also tries to emphasize trying to perform the assessment of ADLs in a real life context if possible to offer the greatest understanding of functional performance.
1: Absolutely. I um I think everyone across the board has has felt their daily occupations and their occupational performance impacted by by COVID-19 um even more f- so for people experiencing uh post COVID-19 condition. Um, so I, I really appreciate that emphasis on on mental health um, and and getting back to performing uh, those tasks and activities that that give life the most meaning. What, what other topic uh, did you would you like to kind of describe and and share those clinical recommendations for right now?
0: Another highly prevalent um, topic is um, thinking about fatigue uh, and and the symptom burden of fatigue on occupational performance, and so. If you're profoundly fatigued, then that could be cognitive fatigue and physical fatigue and thinking about how that might impact your, your ability to engage in the desired roles that you have. And really the recommendations around there are focused on pacing a modification of ADLs as appropriate and thinking about the structure of your normal daily habits and how we can um, enable human performance.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, giving us a little bit more inside information on on, uh, some of those impairment-specific type interventions. What did you find or or what would you say uh, would be one of the most effective interventions or treatment approaches to improve occupational performance and well-being of people who have um, this post-COVID-19 condition?
0: It's a great question. And unfortunately, with the growing body of Uh, research that we have started to um, develop, we still don't necessarily have one validated intervention um, for this novel condition to definitively state that one intervention works better than another. Um, The most holistic approach that we have and really what this guideline tries to reinforce is that this recognizing that this is a real condition with real implications impacting real people's lives. We should continue to listen to our patients and advocate advocate for our patients throughout their rehabilitation process, and really support and educate, you know, patients, consumers, clinicians regarding the best available evidence as it becomes available.
1: I love that. Uh, th- those are wonderful recommendations for practitioners across settings, um, across client populations, uh, to to incorporate those best practices uh, into. What, what we do. Um, so thank you so much. Um, I had a follow-up question for you as well. You mentioned cognitive fatigue. Can you give us a little bit more detail about that? And that's um, a, a new term. I know for me and, and maybe to some of our listeners, uh, how would you really describe cognitive fatigue?
0: Sure. Uh, cognitive fatigue can be described in a variety of different ways, but mainly symptoms will present with uh, lack of concentration, forgetfulness, Uh, feeling like your energy has been just completely depleted. And so while you might have the energy to stand up and go for a walk or, uh, you know, to engage in some sort of leisure task, you don't feel like you have the cognitive energy to engage in some sort of um, task that involves cognitive functioning. So thinking about like making a meal or um, trying to, do some work or something that will involve just a little bit more energy on a normal everyday basis. And you'll feel like your energy level has been completely depleted.
1: It sounds like one of those, um, you know, invisible, uh, symptoms that's, that's real and, and it impacting someone's occupational performance and and ability to to go about their day-to-day. So definitely essential to consider. Um, Starting with, let's say, initial evaluation, how would you recommend a practitioner approach caring for the post-COVID-19 condition population uh, who may be experiencing cognitive fatigue amongst other symptoms?
0: Yes, great question. And so, Um, To support the delivery of rehabilitation services uh, for post-COVID-19 condition, the the guideline really provides three suggestions on the following um, core components. So you think about, one, inclusion of a multidisciplinary rehabilitation team. The second would be thinking about uh, continuity and coordination of care, and so you're not operating in sort of an isolated silo environment. And the third is thinking about the people-centered care and shared decision-making approaches involving the patient um, in their treatment, in their coordination of care, understanding what their goals and values are, and what they ultimately hope to achieve. Um, The guideline recommends early referral and a transdisciplinary approach to care. And that really means that, um, you know, recognizing that one not one specialty might be able to address all the patient's impairments because it's this condition has such a profound impact on multiple different systems. Um, since the guideline was designed for global applicability, the setting in which care is provided might vary. Um, so really what the guideline recommends is based upon the um the condition of the the global pandemic and the levels of infection throughout the community uh, really a hybrid approach of both in person and remote models and so thinking about like doing performing telehealth or something along those lines the next step is thinking about you know what's the what's the appropriate suggested length of a re- program and that's really based upon a patient's needs and so thinking about like enabling um, re-engagement with the healthcare um, provider or or healthcare practitioner if there's like a new onset or functional decline occurs. The next is thinking about like, you know, how do you, what's the next steps in the treatment? And so uh, unfortunately, there's no really like defined core assessment per se for post-COVID-19 condition to be used, um, although there is an outcome set being developed. The guideline recommends in recognizes inclusion of standard outcome assessments is important across all aspects of care, including initial and follow-up visits, but we just don't have enough evidence yet to say what are those outcome measures we should be using. Um, And as we discussed earlier, screening for red flags is essential and should be integrated into the initial evaluation and subsequent follow-up care. And really that's because the symptoms of this condition might fluctuate over time. And lastly, the biggest thing I would recommend is for individuals uh, to read the guideline and use those recommended interventions provided to guide their rehab process.
1: Thank you. And that's very clear how this guideline can be used to kind of be exactly what it is, a guideline for applying the OT process to working with this population. Um, Are are there any additional considerations or actions um, that you would say that clinicians can apply to ensure and best practice when working with this clientele?
0: I think that listening to your patient and listening to their clinical, their symptoms, their presentation and their goals and values is probably the most important. Recognizing again, that this is a real condition that is impacting uh, real people's lives and letting them know that you're going to use the best available evidence um, within the rehabilitation field to try to support um, their return to activities of daily living and work or whatever goals that they may have.
1: I love that. I love that. And Malachi, could you give us a a clinical example of maybe an intervention uh, you've used with uh, someone after acute COVID-19 illness uh, that really helped them achieve a positive outcome?
0: Sure. Uh, One individual I work with uh, who was hospitalized for a long time initially um, for COVID-19 and ultimately continue to experience symptoms of what we now know as post COVID-19 condition. Um, The first thing was really thinking about um, pacing and building up his activity tolerance because any sort of activity that we would attempt to do would provide profound amounts of physical um, fatigue for that individual. And so incorporating those principles of energy conservation, and pacing and activity modification started to help him enable to participate in the basic activities of daily living that we think of. So, like being able to sit up in a chair and feed himself, progressing to being able to dress himself, and ultimately being able to bathe himself and use the bathroom independently. And that was not necessarily, you know, any sort of advanced rehabilitation interventions that we. Um, offered, but really thinking about uh, what are the basic pr- principles and tenets of our OT skills and interventions, and that's what we incorporated, and we were able to have a great positive outcome.
1: I love that. I love that. And uh, Malika, I don't want to, I don't want you to have to share, uh, you know, all your your secrets and everything within your tool, OT toolbox um, right now, but uh, kind of what. What would you do when you were working with uh, this patient on on pacing? Uh, what what were you saying to him or, or or her to help them really apply those energy conservation techniques um, and and modify their different activities?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And so one of the things that we really talk about within um, this guideline per se um, is uh, symptom monitoring and titration. So you think about that as you're also working with the individual to identify when they might be experiencing symptoms. So when they might start to feel like high levels of fatigue or cognitive fatigue or physical fatigue and recognizing what might be the triggers for those symptoms. And so starting to think about ways that we can maybe, um, modify specific tasks to enable um, performance in that task or um, also working with the individual's family to facilitate recognition of those tasks so they can also guide the treatment or guide continued performance um, in those basic um, activities throughout the day. Really, we're there with the individual for only a small Snapshot of their day, and we want to encourage carryovers those interventions. So, including the family as part of those um, treatment sessions was also extremely beneficial.
1: I love that. I love that including the family is so important for carryover and, uh, across settings. Um, and I, I just have one more follow up question on on pacing. Um, if this is kind of an, a, a new approach or intervention that a, a practitioner would like to to apply um, to. Appropriate clients, of course. Um, what kind of recommendations would you give, um, or some main tenants of pacing that that our practitioners could focus on?
0: Sure. And so, I think the easiest way to remember it is it's it's a marathon and not a sprint. So, thinking about um, you have twenty four hours in a day, dividing up the activities that you want to do throughout those days. So you're not necessarily doing every activity that you want to do in once or in a short period of time. So. It might require more time initially to um, perform some tasks. So like waking up in the morning and getting dressed might take you a little bit longer period of time and pacing those tasks a little bit more appropriately. So you're not using all of your energy levels at once.
1: that can be really tough, really tough for clients um, and a a test of patience. uh, But with the with the right guidance um, can definitely make a large impact. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Are there any other examples you'd like to touch on or share right now?
0: I think that the biggest thing that you have to recognize is that because this is such a new condition, we're also seeing individuals who might be younger, who have never experienced physical um, or cognitive disabilities before. and there's a lot of unknown. And so talking through that is is a challenge. And recognizing that, you know, um, this is a a new clinical presentation. There is lots to learn, but you're going to try to incorporate everything you can within your skill set to help them get back to living the life that they knew.
1: I love that. Thank you, Malachi. Um, What additional resources would you recommend to listeners who'd like to learn more about intervention for this population?
0: Yeah, I think that there's a a number of great patient advocacy organizations that I would recommend, and those are really built out of um, people who are living with this condition who are are truly trying to advocate for appropriate policies, evidence, resources to really um, help these individuals live a normal life. And so there's uh, the Long COVID Alliance, there's um, Occupational Therapy for Long COVID, and Long COVID uh, Physio are just a few that I would recommend to the listeners.
1: And all of that also along with this living guideline, which is published uh, on the World Health Organization's website, that's w-h-o-dot-i-n-t. Um, Malachi, we've made it to the golden nugget segment. Our last question of the interview, if you could give one piece of advice or recommendation to occupational therapy practitioners, what would you say?
0: I think that uh, OTs are play an extremely important role in the care of individuals with post-COVID-19 condition and our skills and expertise are well-suited to improve the lives of individuals living with this novel condition. I would encourage everyone to continue to advocate and disseminate our expertise on the care of this novel population.
1: Thank you, Malachi. That's a a wonderful message or nugget to end on. Um, Very encouraging. And I really appreciate your time uh, for this interview. Um, Really was a joy having you on the show.
0: Thanks, Matt.